Welcome to the APAP Podcast. My name is Corinne Young. I'm a nurse practitioner in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, and I am the host of the APAP Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking to Dr. Susan Wilcox about ECMO and all things involving ECMO. Uh, Dr. Wilcox trained in emergency medicine at Harvard Emergency Medicine Residency Program. After residency, she completed an anesthesia critical care fellowship at Massachusetts General Hospital. She has worked for Boston MedFlight since 2009, first as an associate medical director. Then in 2018, she became the associate chief medical officer. In addition to attending the emergency department, she has also attended in the surgical, trauma, medical, and cardiac ICUs. In 2022, she joined Leahy Hospital as the medical director of the 5C Medical ICU. In all of her spare time, uh, she has served as the chair of the critical care section for ACEP, co-chaired the Airway and Mechanical Ventilation and Critical Care Transport Task Force for SCCM, and was a senior editor for the 10th edition of the Rosen's Emergency Medicine. Her academic work focuses on improving the care of critically ill patients in transport and medical education at the intersection of emergency medicine and critical care, and is the absolute perfect person to have here today talking about ECMO. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So you know, I think we should start with talking about who you feel is the best candidate for ECMO um, and and who you think is not. You know, when I know I'm in a community practice, we do not have ECMO in our units. It's usually something we are transporting patients to the university for. So maybe what would be early markers for us to identify to say, okay, this patient, our next step should be thinking about ECMO and getting them to a facility. Yeah. So keeping in mind that there's no such thing as the perfect situation. Um, the best situation would be a person who is previously relatively healthy, relatively young, and has an isolated uh, single organ injury. And, you know, the, the classic ones, of course, being lung injury needing BV ECMO or cardiac and potentially cardiac and lung needing VA ECMO. And so if you have somebody who has few other comorbidities, has an opportunity to live a long, healthy life after ECMO, then that's the kind of person, of course, that we want to be super aggressive with. And so these would be the ideal patients to be putting on. Now, as I said at the beginning, there are very few patients who are textbook perfect for, for these cases. They do happen, but um, you know, I, I think they're the, the kind of ideal situations would be um, a young, healthy person who has a bad aspiration event and they get bad ARDS. Um, you know, actually, a lot of our COVID patients fit into the uh, healthy, then they get COVID, they have severe ARDS, they need ECMO support, you know, but otherwise are previously healthy and have good organ function. For the cardiac side, um, a, a great example would be the, the relatively young, healthy person who has a sudden MI and now is in pericardiac arrest or severe cardiogenic shock. That would be somebody who would benefit from VA ECMO. So it's, um, it doesn't always work. And so we know that a lot of patients have significant comorbidities and uh, a lot of patients will have multi-organ system failure. And so that's where a lot of the art of deciding who deserves ECMO, or I shouldn't say deserves, but who would benefit from ECMO uh, really comes in. Yeah, that's a really tough decision for a lot of facilities to make, especially when you're not doing ECMO routinely. Are we sending the right patient when we call to the referral service, you know, deciding why, why are they wanting this patient and not wanting that patient? So I think that's a great outline. Do you have any outcomes data regarding ECMO? Because I think that's also something we struggle with is it feels like a very 
big salvage therapy because oftentimes I'm sure you guys get transfers to your units as a last resort. Everything else has been tried. So do you have any survival's outcome information? I argue that this is a point where people who are ECMO believers, ECMO advocates right now, have to work on a little bit of faith. We know that there are patients who can benefit, those patients I was just talking about who are the perfect candidates, but those are few and far between. So there is a lot of room, a lot of opportunity for us to better delineate who's going to actually benefit from ECMO. And I think that's where the outcomes data don't reflect the true possibilities that we have for ECMO. And so there are two big studies that get quoted, um, one of them actually being very recent. The ECMO CS study was just recently published this year that randomized patients to uh, VA ECMO early on for uh, cardiogenic shock versus just standard of care. And they, it was kind of an interesting study because they had a com- complicated composite out- endpoint of mortality, the uh, receipt of another mechanical circulatory support device in 30 days, or um, them having a, a resuscitated cardiac arrest. And as you can imagine, those are very different outcomes. Uh, regardless, when they looked at patients who got VA ECMO and the patients who did not get VA ECMO, there was really no difference in their, their outcomes. And what was notable is that the composite outcome, I think it was about 60, uh, 64% in the ECMO group and then 71% in the, the non-ECMO group. So a lot of these patients had some pretty bad outcomes. It seems like very few patients had you know, significant improvement or recovery. And when they looked at just the mortality, it was about 50% in each group. And so if you are not a believer in ECMO, then it really would seem like ECMO is not a benefit. However, the control group, 28% of those patients got ECMO. And so it shows that ECMO is here to stay. And even when patients are randomized to not receiving ECMO, the clinicians caring for them did not feel that they could, in good faith, have equipoise and, and withhold ECMO from those patients. Same thing goes for the VV side, for the, the pulmonary failure type of ECMO. And there was the EOLIA trial, which was published in the New England Journal in 2018. And in that study, similar setup, they looked at patients with ARDS and they randomized them to early VV ECMO versus conventional care. And the trial was stopped early for futility because they weren't seeing any difference in the outcomes. But the same thing, patients who were randomized to no ECMO ended up getting ECMO a significant amount of the time. And so, you know, those of us who are ECMO proponents argue that clinicians feel that there are patients that we are saving with ECMO. We don't feel that we can in good faith withhold ECMO from a lot of patients. And so doing these trials is a real challenge because we don't truly have clinical equipoise. And we know that there are patients who benefit. We just haven't been able to show it yet in a broad population. And so I really think this is one of the areas of a lot of research trying to better delineate who's going to really benefit from ECMO and improve their outcomes. So you don't have data showing benefit, but we do we not have data showing harm? So there's no there are no data to show harm either. They It looks like, uh, well, I, sh- I should back up. There are definitely complications from the procedure, as we know, of course. If you're doing a big procedure like this, patients are going to have uh, more bleeding, they can have infections, et cetera. But when we tear, look at the outcomes that we really care about, because when we're talking about ECMO, of course, it's literally a life and death conversation. Then, then we say, no, it doesn't really seem, it doesn't seem to do harm either. Yeah. And, and I've, I'm sure that's why you feel like you can't in good faith not give them the opportunity to ECMO because you know that 
it's not likely going to hasten their mortality or cause increased mortality. Exactly. Okay. So ECMO has been around for like 30 years, which I really was not aware of. I mean, time is just flying, you know, the longer you're in medicine, but um, I didn't realize it was around that long. Um, what changes have you seen with ECMO? And I know like the basics of it are pretty much the same over the last 30 years, but I know it's becoming smaller, more available. There's patients walking around on ECMO now. Can you talk to us a little bit about the evolution of ECMO and maybe where you see it going? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, I took care of one of the early adult ECMO patients at Mass General, you know, many, many years ago, certainly, certainly by no means the first, but we just didn't have that many adults that had had it. And so I had one of the earlier ones. And it was, it, I think that one of the, the, the big changes is the uh, level of expertise and level of understanding that's, that's percolating throughout the, the medical community. And what that allows us to do is have a, a broader um broader application for the services. When this particular patient was put on ECMO, everyone was extremely uncomfortable with, with this patient, even at a big you know, tertiary care center that takes care of some of the sickest patients in the world. And now we're, we are seeing it moving out into community hospitals. We're seeing it being adopted uh, much more broadly. And so that means a lot of patients who previously hadn't been considered are now being considered. I think about some of the early patients that I took care of and I, were, I was told by uh, people far more senior than myself with more experience that you could never do ECMO on a pregnant patient, that the, the bleeding would be you know, um, un- unsalvageable, and that, that was not a, uh, an option. I was told that ECMO would uh, not improve outcomes for patients who have HIV because it has some relative immunosuppressant you know, uh, inflammatory situation, and so that um, that would actually just make their, their situation even worse, which now we, we know is not true. We, we certainly use it in, in this patient population. Um, one thing that's really impressive is the growth of the eCPR or the um, ECMO for patients who are undergoing cardiac arrest programs. And so, you know, there, there's a real opportunity there to, to start to apply this to many more patients. And, and I think that's one of the most exciting areas of the ECMO growth. Now, could you please tell me about your APP involvement in your ECHO program? Rhea, Ray is one of our board members. Uh, yeah. And when I found out she was doing ECMO five years ago when we first met, I was just so impressed um, with her level involvement and what she was doing, that type of thing. So if you could talk to us a little bit about your APPs in your unit and, and how they help with managing your ECMO patients. Yeah, I think APPs are critical in, in developing and sustaining an ECMO program. And you know, just as an aside, uh, it, it's great for uh, physician trainees, residents, and fellows to, to learn ECMO, and they need to learn ECMO as well. But many of them rotate through, they rotate off, and they're no longer involved in the unit, and they're, they're not a consistent presence. Having people that you can train, develop, and truly become experts in managing these patients uh, is uh, an invaluable resource. And it's it's really critical to making a program, making a program run. And so, two of the the two centers that I've worked at that are ECMO centers have really relied heavily on on APPs for for success of the program. And you know, the the APP groups that I've seen taking care of ECMO patients have done everything from helping with the cannulations, uh, which is a, a great role because we we need again trained people who are familiar with the equipment, who know have a role, who understand the process and can be there in the unit and ready to go. 
And then they're critical for actually providing the, the day-to-day care and following up on all of the, the labs and the management and the flow and the circuit. And um, it, it's, you know, it's a skill just like anything else. But I, I think that having a, a dedicated group of APPs is incredibly important to sustaining an ECMO program. That's excellent. How about your training or onboarding? Because this is definitely not something we come out of school learning. So right. can you talk to us a little bit about how you onboard, maybe how you do your proficiencies? What what does that look like in your unit? Yeah, so we are, we're still in the process at Leahy Hospital of, of developing our, our ECMO training program. Um, at my prior institution, we would work a lot with didactics. You, you, know, you start with the basics. It's just like anything else that, that we learn, right? So you learn the, the essentials of the circuit, of the physiology, because I think that's a key thing that's, that's a challenge for people to learn, thinking about the circulation in parallel versus series and, and thinking about the, the differences between VV and VA, how the ventilator works. And so a lot of that is didactics, it's book learning. It's, it's actually understanding the, the principles and the concepts behind it. But then there's a lot of hands-on components too. And so uh, all ECMO programs that, that are again, you know, growing robust programs will have water drills where they actually run people through simulations using a, a circuit filled with water and everyone gets to play with the components of it, touch it hands-on, actually get some learning without having a, a patient connected. And so uh, yeah, I can't emphasize enough the, the role that simulation plays in getting that level of comfort. And then of course, it's it just doing it and being able to be at the bedside, taking care of these patients and being involved with the team as part of make, being part of the team, making the decisions for the patients is the best way, of course, to, to learn uh, all, the, all the components. I don't know if they still do it, but uh, Chess was doing an ECMO simulation course. Um, I don't know if they still are. Do you have any other resources that you would recommend for people to look at if they're wanting to learn more about ECMO? Yeah, so I know that um, so the American College of Emergency Physicians has been uh, putting on some courses in simulation. Um, there are uh, simulation courses and through the Society of Critical Care Medicine as well in, in learning ECMO. Um, and then there are many new, uh, uh, I guess people are entrepreneurs in, in developing courses because this is such a growing field and a lot of people want to learn. And so I, I would encourage people to, to take a course. I think it's a, a great way to jumpstart your learning. And you know, all of these courses will have a hands-on component, which is something that can be a little bit challenging, especially if you're in a more resource-limited uh, setting. I know one of our cardiothoracic surgeons was really interested in starting an ECMO program for her post-op, um, you know, complications, patients, that type of thing. And it just kind of died. You know, we heard about it. She came to us as the critical care service. Would we help them with managing, you know, the overnight service for ECMO and training and all these things? And, and we said, well, yeah, with the right setup, we could all figure out how to do this. Um, But then it just kind of died and we never heard about it again. So I'm sure there are a lot of hurdles to initiating ECMO in your facility. So what recommendations would you give? You've been at multiple facilities now. What works? What doesn't? What kind of advice would you give to maybe a a ICU that's considering initiating ECMO? Yeah. So the the story that you tell is is very familiar because there's because we do know they can offer so much benefit to that selected patient population. There's a lot of excitement about offering this very intensive therapy, but it is a very intensive therapy. And so you have to have a cadre of, of people who are very dedicated to making this work. And this is, again, where I think that having that APP involvement is so critical 
because we need to have a, a large group, a multidisciplinary group to, to really make this function. And so I think that you have to have buy-in from physicians and you have to have buy-in from your APPs. You have to have the clinicians who are going to be taking care of these patients, but you need and nurses as well who are going to be trained up, who are going to be there at the bedside to care for them. Respiratory therapists have to be trained. Perfusion is key for both initiating, you know, cannulating the patient and then getting the, keeping the patient, uh, keeping the patient cannulated, keeping the, the flows going. And so, it, you know, it, it sounds cliche, but it's, it, it takes a village. Everyone has to be, be invested in buying in. And so what I've seen happen, unfortunately, is that a few people get excited about this and then there's not a lot of buy-in from maybe other people in other role groups in, in the hospital. One of the challenges is that it's often early on an unfunded mandate. And so a lot of institutions are saying, well, you have to show me the money. We need to make sure that we can make this work, that not even just from the financial perspective, which is a whole different topic, but just can we make this work? And so you have to have that group of people who are willing to invest the time and the energy to, to keep this going. And it's like you can't cannulate a person and then halfway through realize that you have halfway through the run, realize you have no one to take care of them or, we, you know, oh, on Wednesday night, we just don't have a nurse to take care of this patient. That doesn't work. You have to have it, everything fully staffed in advance. And so all that to say, I think that planning, understanding the multidisciplinary nature of this and making sure that you have a significant amount of investment from all of those people before is essential to making a program work. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I'm 100% sure that is exactly what happened was definitely the financial piece. And I'm sure there's yeah. whole separate ECMO billing codes that you use and that type of thing. But but yeah, just the initial buy-in to do it is is overwhelming. So what do you think the future of ECMO is? Are, are there things in the pipeline studies going on right now that really have you excited about what's to come? Yeah, I think that it... It offers so much promise if we can just figure out that right patient. And I know it's the thing that I started with first. And I, I said, this is what the, the real excitement of ECMO is. And I really do believe that we have patients that we have saved. I, I you know that this is why we do evidence-based medicine, right? We're not supposed to say that we believe things, we feel things. Yet, I think we all have seen cases where we, we you know, feel that something that we did improved the patient's outcome. And I have seen patients that were literally dying in front of me. We put them on ECMO and they leave the hospital. And it's being able to a priori, you know, pick out who that patient is going to be. And that's the part that we just don't know yet. And so our colleagues in um, Paris, our colleagues in Albuquerque are going out and cannulating people in the field. And I think that's amazing. It's an incredible resource investment. I mean, forget setting up a program in your hospital. To be able to set up a program and go out and cannulate in the field is, is spectacular. But, you know, they've had some in incredible saves, you know, getting patients recirculated and, and out of hospital cardiac arrest. It can work really well. But we have to know who those patients are. We have to have systems that work. And so what I think is going to be really exciting over the next few years is increasing data to show us which patients will best benefit how we can start to pick out the patients who are really going to, to benefit from this invasive therapy, start to develop these programs. Because I feel like as we can show improved outcomes, we can actually make the argument that, that we should get resources. We should be able to pay for the nurse to come in on Wednesday night and to make sure that we can develop these programs throughout. And 
I'm hopeful that with increasing research, increasing data, we'll have a snowball effect and this will become more commonplace and, and people learn more and more and we can continue to improve the outcomes. Wonderful. Well, that was a lot of information on ECMO. And I know we didn't dive too deep into the, you know, scientific data and studies and that type of thing. But I think this is a great intro for APPs that might be going to an ECMO unit or are going to be starting, you know, possibly working with ECMO or always have just been interested in ECMO. So I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing that with us. To everyone else who's listening, please like, subscribe, share with your colleagues. It's the best way to support APAP so we can bring you more content like this. Thank you, Dr. Wilcox. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me.